The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. I want to shift our focus to the pharmaceutical industry. We've been talking a lot about uh, when President Trump is going to shift his focus to lowering drug prices. It appears to be that the time is now. And joining us is Max Neeson, biotech pharma and healthcare columnist for Bloomberg Opinion, our oracle of the pharmaceutical industry and all things healthcare. Max, so just lay out what happened with Pfizer and President Trump's involvement here. Well, um, as it always is with the uh drug pricing there there's more uh, than there appears to be on the surface so um as it usually does kind of on a 6 month basis um Pfizer raised drug prices on a, on a number of medica- uh, a number of its medications uh the president took to twitter to criticize them for that um on July 9th and then uh, yesterday evening he announced that after speaking to the to Pfizer CEO uh on the phone with the Health and Human Services Secretary Alex Azar, they had agreed to roll back uh, the price hikes they had planned to take um, probably sometime in the next few weeks, but uh, not permanently. Uh, it's either until January 1st or until the president's uh, drug price blueprint is enacted, though uh, no def- definition of enacted there. So um, it, it is a temporary rollback of prices as opposed to something permanent or drastic. Max, uh, is this really what the pharmaceutical industry is looking for, which is an ad hoc kind of strategy on the part of the administration to deal with drug prices? Um, you know, I, I, I don't think this is how they really prefer to, to operate. Um, just kind of unilateral public negotiations um, in, in kind of the public sphere and then just kind of the president using the bully pulpit on a on an individual basis. I think that's what they've been scared of for a long time, which is probably why Pfizer um, kind of chose to engage in this way. But I, I think they actually got a decent deal out of it. They kind of removed themselves from criticism without really giving up all that much. Okay, the, 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 re- the reason I asked you is because maybe this is the way to do it. I mean, maybe this is the way to avoid having the back and forth of lobby interests in the Congress trying to manipulate or to massage the let potential legislation that would create some kind of consistent plan and maybe this is the way that the the president has decided to go at it because he doesn't want to have to deal with the special interest groups or the pressure that's been previously applied to drug prices that, that, that actually makes a lot of sense in the sense you give the president kind of a big public victory he gets to play um master negotiator which is uh, a favored role of his, and then, you know, have this sort of talking point, like, look at me, I brought drug prices down, um, even though the actual impact on, you know, Pfizer, on patients, on the drug pricing problem at all is is actually quite minimal. 
Well, okay. So President Trump is one part of this, and Pfizer is uh, certainly a specific story. But more broadly, there were a number of drug makers that lowered their prices in response to a new California law that aims to provide more transparency to the pharmaceutical industry. So uh, even if President Trump is taking that ad ad hoc approach, states are being more systematic, in this case, California. Absolutely. And, um, you know, it's difficult to tell exactly how much of um, those price rollbacks are are ascribable to the law as opposed to whether we just happen to find out about them uh, because of the way that the law is structured. Basically, it requires drug makers to to kind of report and justify uh, price increases that are of a certain magnitude. But it's pretty clear that the transparency has some effect, having to let health plans know in advance, um, which gives them time to kind of push back, to react, and then having all of that sort of in the public sphere clearly has an effect. And that's sort of... Um, kind of a blueprint that other states or potential the government can follow um, if they actually want to have kind of a, a sustained impact as opposed to this kind of one-time, um, short-duration sort of thing. Max, has there been any discussion about the way in which healthcare is delivered? I don't mean drug prices, but the actual healthcare. And, and the reason I ask is because yesterday we had a segment in which we focused on innovation in healthcare delivery having to do with hospitals, for example, where some hospitals would specialize in heart surgery, other hospitals would specialize in other kinds of surgical procedures or services. Right now, you have no idea how much they cost from hospital to hospital, so every hospital ends up almost duplicating the services, and they compete with each other rather than delivering uh, what would be called efficient healthcare. So I, I think the the lack of price transparency and the lack of um, really prices in healthcare that are just available or interpretable to the average consumer is is really one of the most difficult things. It's it's basically impossible to comparison shop um, with any kind of like real pricing data or real data on outcomes on quality. Um, the the data is bad. Uh, Hospitals, usually for the most part, are interested in obfuscating that data yeah. um, about what something costs and why, which is why you you, know, you hear about those bills where you have you know $1,000 charges for, for aspirin, for, for minor care, um, just because you know they, they, that's not the real price. The one they negotiate with your insurer is the real price, but it's impossible to find the real price and compare it. So uh, yeah, it's a, it's a miserable situation. Well, and and trying to to fix the entire healthcare system is a heady one and one that we could spend hours on. Uh, there are some things that are going on right now, though, with respect to Obamacare, which is sort of heralded as a solution, but has been uh, really kind of tried to. At least the attempt has been to try to pare it back in the recent few years. And the latest ha- uh, events have to do with reducing the payments to high-risk pools, as well as uh, President Trump uh, cutting some of the grants that help consumers get Obamacare. How significant are these developments in your view? Um, you know, for the most part, it depends on particularly the the major one, which is uh, the the risk corridors, or the sorry, the risk adjustment payments, basically that um, insurers that have the sickest population, um, they get paid back to a certain extent by insurers that have a healthier population. Um, it helps them kind of stay in business and just adjust and, and make basically insuring those sicker patients more viable. Um, it's I'm I bet like that it's likely that those payments will resume at some point. It was due to kind of just this weird, quirky New Mexico court case. 
But um, in even though that's going on, uh, just today or, or last night rather, we just got news that another insurer was expanding in a couple of ACA markets. So even though things are kind of still uncertain and um, and kind of prone to shake up and, and prone to what many would call sabotage, um, there are still people interested in this market as opposed to years past where everyone was just kind of fleeing. Well, the, but this is actually fascinating to me. And one thing that I'm wondering as insurers expand in ACA, expand their Obamacare coverage, does that mean that people still like this program or does that mean that the program is being made more lucrative for the health insurers? Um, I think it's a little bit of both. The in the sense that insurers are, are a little bit more experienced with what it takes to be profitable in this market, even though it keeps changing and getting uh, weirder every year. But um, as for the consumer experience, it's very much bifurcated between people that get subsidies and people that don't. Um, for someone that gets a subsidy, you can get relatively affordable insurance without paying that much. But because of the fact that the law has been sort of systematically undermined, um, or at the very least not helped, as in, um, you know, things that could be done to improve it have, have just not happened because of uh, the administration in Congress. Um, premiums have gone up for people that have just uh, aren't in that uh, kind of income cutoff that lets them get subsidies. So it's it's really terrible for them, but, but still good for uh, a good chunk of the market, which is more than 80% that do get subsidies. Max, you know, one of the things that happens when you have the healthcare reform debate is you always hear about the cost of end-of-life care and how much that is outsized. That turns out to not necessarily be so. I mean, there's an estimate that between 11 to 13% of total healthcare spending is on that end-of-life time uh, for patients. Is... Uh, is the focus should the focus then be on chronic uh, long-term conditions? Is that really where the bulk of the money goes? I mean, if if there's anywhere that you can move the dial, just sort of in the largest possible population that requires um, the greatest amount of healthcare spending over the longer term and has the most benefit, if you can kind of manage those conditions well, um, it's definitely that population. And for the most part, it's something that's that's not done especially well, unless you're lucky enough to have, um, you know, a series of healthcare providers that are are really engaged or um, an employer that's kind of actively engaging in, in managing those costs. Otherwise, you, you kind of just get left alone. And, um, you know, it, it's, uh, it's not easy uh, without kind of expert advice and input and monitoring and, and all of that. And we're only uh, just starting to get better than that. Is, and uh, that, that's something where there's a lot of area for improvement. Just real quick, uh, I do want to note that the S&P 500 healthcare index has fallen uh, nearly a percentage point today, and that this a lot of people are attributing this to what happened with Pfizer. Do you expect President Trump to take a similar tack with other pharmaceutical companies in the near future? Um, you know, now now that he's gotten the sense that if he gets uh, gets a CEO on on the phone and and uh, chats them for a while, that they might actually do something. He he may very well uh, give it give it a shot again, um, especially because you know we're we're in this is drug price hike season, uh, middle of the year, July first. So there are a number of other kind of prominent firms that that have increased prices. He may give it a shot. Um, you know, I I would have even if it happens, even if the entire drug industry rolls back this round of drug pricing increases. You have to keep in mind that every single price hike that they've done for the past decade is still there. So this is really uh, at the end of the day. On the margins, um, I'm I'm hopeful that uh, 
some something more will materialize. But um, you know, this might stick, shake stocks in the near term. Uh, I don't think it's going to be a, a wait for the long term. Like a fig leaf, I guess you could describe it. Thanks very much, uh, Max Neeson, Bloomberg opinion columnist for all things related to healthcare. Of course, we appreciate your comments and your thoughts. You can follow Max on Twitter at Max Neeson. Our next guest is here in reality. He is Vajit Arat. He is the co-founder and president of HIA Technologies. They're based in Los Angeles. And the reason why I say, Ajit, that you are here in reality is because you are focused on the world of artificial intelligence and avatars and creating the software and the platforms to actually have meaningful conversations with machines. Exactly. This is a technology that has been uh, used um, through the the Institute of Creative Technologies at USC, uh, the University of Southern California on the West Coast. And uh, it was a military-funded research. $40 million went into it. And um, we're the first ones to commercialize this outside of the Institute. They use it for military training and avatar interacting with humans uh, to, to... test out certain situations with them, and more specifically, uh, PTSD therapy. Post-traumatic stress disorders therapy. Uh, Right. So um, veterans with PTSD, it turns out, respond to avatars much better in in terms of opening up and revealing more about themselves, feeling more comfortable, taking more time to be interviewed than psychiatrists. So they had some uh, uh, famous papers published on this, and it's been a couple of years, but now it's, the technology has come to a point that it's cloud-based, you know, uh, client-server, it's very easily uh, transported to mobile devices, etc. So we decided to commercialize it. We have an exclusive license from USC, and we're going to use it for HR and specifically in recruiting. We will conduct pre-screening interviews for companies that hire large numbers of people and find it difficult to do a good job in screening candidates and finding the right kind of people. Can we just talk a little bit about the concept of replicating a conversation in real time with a computer? Because when you have uh, Alexa, for example, and you ask her a question, she'll give you a response based on an internet search, but it's not carrying on a conversation. So how... How does that work? Is that is that incredibly complicated to make happen? It is complicated, and it starts out with a lot of uh, manual work. You have to script these conversations, but it, the magical thing behind it is the machine learning. It learns from its experiences, and then it gets better and better over time. It gets better much quicker than humans get better in anything. So, um, yes, it is complex, but um, you know, you, you, you have to start with a base product. For example, um, in interviewing, we have these job modules. It's a question and answer module. So, for a, a junior accountant position, there is a set of 25 questions that the companies decided to ask their Uh, potential employees. And uh, these are crafted by combination of our experts that we found and 
their specific questions. So the questions are listed, and then there's buckets of answers for each question. What we do is we listen to the answer. We assign what we heard to a particular bucket. Okay. Can can avatars be funny? Yes. Yes. So there's an algorithm <clears throat> for, for humor? Yes, and... You have to understand, we have to be very careful in applying that to situations like this. So we have actually tested that. You know, uh, it, it, people um, do not take it lightly. And this, is, this happened in Siri and Alexa as well. Um, a majority of the people do not think it's funny enough or it's, 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 it's appropriate. So what we decided to do, literally, in this particular case, since it's a an enterprise sale for us, uh, we decided to stay on the safe side and not quite go there. And we just go very polite and very courteous, and uh, we just we just don't go there. But it's definitely possible. Tell us a little bit about how you got involved in this, because you have a wide-ranging career in technology in Silicon Valley, uh, Fabricate Labs, for example, a Microfabrica uh, is another one of the companies, I believe, that you were... Uh, yeah. Uh, involved with, yeah. you you seem to have this uh, s- sort of perspective of turning what is sort of an almost mundane thing, you know, concepts into something uh, I- I- precious and 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 you know, driven by technology. Yeah, um, you know, pioneering brand new ideas um, is my passion, uh, and uh, that is a pattern in my background too. Um, Some of those ideas, uh, some of the pioneering efforts have not been that successful, but it is what I like. And uh, changing paradigms, changing the way things are done today, um, disrupting the way things are done today, especially when it comes to uh, making people more productive um, and uh, making people more accurate in the way they, they they do things. What what we do, for example, I mean, it's an analogy is an Excel sheet. You know, uh, yeah. we didn't Excel sheet doesn't did not dislodge accountants from their jobs. Right, it it's a tool, them. and it doesn't. You know, much like AI is. Vajit Arat. I could spend the next hour speaking with you, probably more. Thank you so much for being here. It was really great having you. We'll have to have you back. Vajit Arat is co-founder and president of HIA Technologies in Los Angeles, creating technology that will soon replace me. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. When we talk about trade skirmishes between China and the U.S., many are quick to point out that China's imports from the U.S. aren't large enough to match Trump's tariffs dollar for dollar, meaning that they're unable to hit back uh, really uh, with the same force that the U.S. is. 
But is that true? Joining us now, Carl Weinberg. He's chief economist at High Frequency Economics in New York. Carl, thank you so much for being here. So let's just start there. I mean, is it true that China really can't hit back dollar for dollar just due to the fact that it doesn't import enough from the U.S.? Yeah, hi, Lisa. Good morning. Thanks for having me on your program. Um, China has a lot of weapons it can use that aren't strictly tariffs that could be engaged in a trade war. Uh, the most likely that we are that we are prone to see and perhaps have already started to see are just boycotts against American-branded goods. Um, you know, U.S. automobile makers reported a drop in sales in May uh, of U.S.-branded uh, vehicles. Uh, we've seen the Chinese do this before boycotting brands from Japan and South Korea when tensions have uh, risen uh, on the political front uh, against those nations. Uh, the U.S. companies have about $100 billion of direct investment in in China in projects to make goods for Chinese consumers in China. And every one of those companies is vulnerable, and they're some of our biggest corporate names. Carl Weinberg, as an example, BMW says it will build more of its SUVs overseas and not in South Carolina because of China's retaliation in the auto industry. Do you believe that? Sorry, go ahead. Exactly, Tim. And we, we just reported on Bloomberg the story yesterday of Tesla uh, promising to build a plant there to build half a million vehicles per year in China. Uh, we don't know how real that is, but the intention is certainly real. And if Tesla can do it, uh, others can do it. GM right now, according to an article I read on Bloomberg a few weeks ago, produces more cars in China under 10 joint ventures and two direct investments than it does in the United States. So big companies are vulnerable, and some companies uh, get a great proportion of their profits, if not most of them, from transactions in China. So, Carl, how much of this is being priced in that China will retaliate in the manner that you say with sort of uh, boycotting or discriminating against U.S. companies that are doing business in China? Lisa, I wish I could give you an answer to that. There's no way to know. We've never really seen anything like this before. Uh, the only prior that we can point to is that when China has engaged in a spat with Japan, Japanese brands were boycotted. When uh, they engaged in a spat with Korea, Korean brands were boycotted. And uh, this can be a very, very effective uh, counter tool. Uh, in any case, you know, the, the, the name of the game here, the objective of the Trump tariffs, is to try to short-circuit China's Made in China 2025 program. And that's worth about a trillion dollars a year to China's economy forever once they succeed in it, and I think they will. And whatever pain that China feels on tariffs and on this trade war is peanuts compared to the potential gains from China 2025. All right. So that is one way that China could hit back is through uh, some of the measures it could take against U.S. companies. What about its treasury holdings? I mean, do you expect that that uh, to be on the table with China potentially liquidating its holdings? Well, there's a risk of that at, at any time that China could decide to let go. Of course, they do have their own capital invested in those bonds so that if they uh, undermine the market, they do undermine the present value of their portfolio. But if they're planning on holding uh, to maturity, uh, then they, they uh, can finesse the uh, capital losses and uh, they can probably make a profit on the bonds that they sell. So I would say that there is a risk, but I would say it's a tail risk right now, mainly because China sees itself as a world player, and its future is involved in globalism. And to undermine the U.S. Treasury market would undermine the world economy, and that's not in China's interest. It has more t- focused uh, tools at its disposal that it can use. 
Carl, what about using currency as a weapon in this war? Well, it would seem, you know, almost that they are. You know, we see the yuan uh, getting cheaper. And, um, you know, that certainly is one way to offset the impact of tariffs. Uh, the thing is, they don't really have to go that route. Uh, I'm writing tonight for my customers at High Frequency Economics for our readers here a story about trade diversion and alternative sources for goods. And um, China can, um, uh, can really skate through this tariff war with very little effect on its domestic economy. Um, the losses that they would face on sales to the U.S. would be minimal, and the impact on their consumers of the tariffs the U.S. is proposing would be, I think, negligible. Thank you very much for spending time with us. Carl Weinberg is the chief economist for High Frequency Economics. You can follow Carl on Twitter at CB Weinberg. The topic, tariffs and President Donald Trump's trade war and retaliation from China. Fake accounts, yes, fake accounts at Twitter, potentially fake accounts at Facebook, fake accounts almost everywhere. Here to tell us more about social media and advertising is David Garrity. He is the chief executive of GVA Research, and you can, of course, uh, follow David as we do on Twitter at GVA Research. David, always a pleasure. Thanks for coming into the studio. Uh, you're not a fake account, but... How do we know that there isn't someone out there on social media impersonating David Garrity? Um, apart from the fact of you know my own activity and those of people who basically host my social media activities, you know, trying to make sure that nobody's out there squatting. Uh, so you know, there's a certain amount of self-policing that takes place, but clearly we have a circumstance here with social media platforms, you know, not necessarily subscribing to the good business practices that you know traditional. Um, news organizations and or other technology companies had subscribed to in terms of verifying users' identities. Clearly, you know, we're, we're seeing a belated response on the part of Twitter to suddenly go out and purge one out of every five of their user accounts as of the end of March. I mean, the number of 70 million was somewhat staggering, especially when you consider that they have 70 million users in the U.S., alone. Now, clearly, we don't know what the geographic, you know, dispersion was or distribution was of these 70 million accounts that were being axed by Twitter. But it would be very interesting to go through and see, you know, these accounts, what kind of social positions and or political positions were they espousing? To what extent was that basically a very clear measure of manipulation of public opinion through Twitter? Yeah. You know, and the question really is begged here, if this is what they've done now, what are they going to be going to do on an ongoing basis? What's Facebook going to be doing? You know, do we have a consensus potentially in Congress or do we have a consensus overseas, say within the EU, yeah. to make sure that these practices uh, are being, that the bar is being raised? So what I'm trying to understand is also what are the consequences, consequences from a corporate standpoint of uh, some of these social media companies actually taking action. I mean, Twitter, yes, we know that they're going to be culling about one-fifth of all of their active monthly users, calling them fake uh, bots uh, or impersonating uh, impersonating uh, identities, but their shares are still up more than 80% this year. 
No, I mean, certainly one could say on the flip side that they're going to be able to come back to advertisers and say, look, okay, we've gone through, we've vetted our accounts, you're really dealing with real people here. And from that standpoint, we can justify our ad rates. And, you know, we've, we've you know, come to the altar, we've confessed our sins, you know, absolve us and let us go forward. And the question really boils down to, from a, a social and from a policy standpoint, you know, is that good enough? Uh, my view would be no, because, you know, what happened once clearly could happen again. I think that this might be an interesting opportunity to apply a, a new technology, say blockchain, to verify user identity when accounts are opened and also to update that record as new posts are being added. Wait, hold on one second. I'm sorry, because people use blockchain in a lot of liberal ways and, and there's sort of almost a joke in the newsroom that, you know, if you have a problem, just say blockchain and it'll go away. I mean, are you basically saying that everybody should have a digital fingerprint and that basically is used to uh, sort of peg their social media presences in reality? Is it that type of thing? And that the blockchain technology would be used to give everyone that digital fingerprint? Or is it... My concept here would be, say, that for Twitter themselves, they could develop a utility token, which you know, in, which users would have to employ in order to access their platform. You know, if what Twitter wants to be able to put forward, absent the imposition of regulation and oversight, if they wanted to adopt a solution that might allow a better tracking and verification, um, you know, around what activities are taking place on their site, blockchain in this case actually is something of possible application and value. And I think it's something where you would have a distributed network because you have many people, many parties, who are actually are interested in establishing and confirming and upholding the veracity of what's going across social media platforms. You know, this is possible uh, for Twitter to consider a blockchain application. David Garrity, uh, I just want to bring in the concept of a middleman or middle person, right? And I understand that blockchain and Bitcoin and a lot of cryptocurrencies, why we sometimes shouldn't conflate them. It is the goal to get rid of the cost, the friction cost that exists in the middle of transactions. Would that be accurate? No, entirely. And, okay. And, and until such time as we actually have technologies developed to support blockchain applications that have faster transaction times and lower transaction costs than existing centralized providers, you know, those are obstacles to blockchain adoption long-term. Okay, let me just see if I can strike a blow for the middle person. You know, in the world of book selling, there used to be this concept that a publisher would ship a certain amount of books to a retail establishment. What the retail establishment didn't sell, they were allowed to then send back to the bookseller, to the publisher. In another model, the book publisher sent books to the retailer and they didn't take anything back. When the New York Times went to look at bestseller lists, they decided that it was more important to look at those organizations that could send the books back that were unsold because they had no reason to fake the results. You had retailers who were faking results by saying, oh yeah, this was a bestseller, and it became a self-fulfilling prophecy. So I'm wondering who would that middle person be in these kinds of transactions. In the middle person, in case of this example, uh, might very well be a consortium that would be formed between the publishers and those retailers who would agree to participate. Um, you know, arguably, assuming that there is, you know, frictionless application, you know, low cost for transactions, low cost for processing, you know, you could potentially apply a blockchain 
tracker to each book that was going out and being sold. And then you could use, you know, barcode readers to potentially update the related blockchains. And the distributed nodes that would be supporting the application of this blockchain would be operated by the consortium of these different organizations. Would that work for social media as well? Well, potentially, yes. I think in the case here of looking at Twitter, if one of the problems that we have is the ease with which these fake accounts can be opened, impersonating myself or impersonating you, or God forbid, impersonating Lisa. Don't you um, dare. Exactly. But <laughs> Lisa you know, Abramowitz won, by the way. Precisely, precisely. Not two, three, or four. Exactly. But um, from that standpoint, you know, if we can find a platform that technology can be used to help to enable this kind of verification of identity and veracity of content, arguably given all that we have suffered, if you will, as a society because of the manipulation of social media, we would all benefit. David Garrity, the one and only, the non-impersonatable. David Garrity, the chief executive of GVA Research uh, here in our 1130 studios. Uh, Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at CarterEconomicForum.com.